K Video, the film podcast about movies. I'm Nathan Rohr, formerly of Rogers Video, Blockbuster Video, and Shoppers Drug Mart, and I'm joined as always by Ryan McCullough. Hi uh, there, Ryan here. Uh, Nathan, I actually think that's like one of the first things you ever said. Like, on... Is the film podcast about yeah. movies? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it rang a bell, but... You know, it's still true. It's still true. Seven You're right. batches You're right. in. So right. I'm just. I'm so used to this point of like some kind of like local thing. You know, like a comment about some. Like oh local yeah. Thing. Welcome to OK Video. Peter's is still great. Best burger in town. <laughs> but I, I <laughs> anyway. can't believe you. You're like joking about that, right? Though. I enjoy it, and I I'm mad now that people have turned on it. I think they're just trying to be cool or something. Okay, so. can I just be? Can I just be in the in the camp that I've never been a Peter's fan? Okay, too much barbecue sauce or what's going on? Too much, not a good burger. What? It's like they throw an extra patty in there just for free. Get an okay, extra chunk because the first patty is so thin that it's like barely a patty. But that's still that's how McDonald's does it. That's how McDonald's does it. But they they those burgers are like a fraction of the size. Period. So it feels yeah, like you a get, small burger. You get a wider, thin disc. Yeah. You know? I don't know, man. I've I've never been a fan. I, I for me, it's like when I was a kid, it was like I wanted the fixings, and it was like no, it's just it's just barbecue, ketchup, and uh, mustard and relish, onion. That's it. I think there's some onion in there. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Yeah, like, it's I was a pretty like, simple I, I want burger. the fixings, and I think they're just like I just really think they're overrated. There's like Inglewood Drive-In is a significantly better burger. There's better burgers in the city. Eh. All right. Have you tried Inglewood? I don't even know what that is because it's there so famous. Go. That's what yeah. I mean. You got to go out there and look for these better burgers. They're out there 100%. This okay. is not even close. Rocky Mountain Burger Bus is also a better burger. I bet it's similar to what a burger is what we're getting at Peter's for wider context just from what they look like. But I don't know for sure. I haven't been to Whataburger. <laughs> okay. But I'll try it out when I'm in Texas next time. Just, <laughs> Which you has never happened. We have a lot of Texan Texan listeners. I don't even know what a Whataburger is. I think I think we actually just have more Canadian listeners than we do anything else. Oh, probably yeah. There's a chain called Whataburger. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> so I think everybody Foster here Wallace. is like they were fully tracking with you on the Peter's conversation, and then they're like, "Wait, what's a Whataburger? Like, what's a oh? Whataburger? You see ads for it a lot on your watching." sports but you're watching yeah. sports through sports networks um yeah anyways yes uh this is a film podcast about movies and uh my name is ryan and as always i'm happy to be watching movies with my friend nathan thank you uh this batch we're looking at stephen king movies uh largely ones we hadn't seen before uh this week we watched needful things which was directed by fraser c heston who i found out is the son of actor charlton heston and lydia clark I didn't know that. I just didn't put together that it was a Heston. Uh, and adapted by W.D. Richter, who would go on to write Stealth, a movie <laughs> I've never actually watched, but I'm pretty certain I would enjoy. On I can't some believe... Level. Wait, wait, you never watched Stealth? I borrowed it from you for months, but I never actually watched it. <laughs> so... I don't even own that copy remains. anymore. It's just... It's such a bad movie that it is kind of fun, but it's like... It's still Rob Cohen, who is yeah. not a good film director. Like, was it Jamie Foxx filmed it before he was in Ray? No, no, no. Well, he filmed it almost at the same the same year, and then Ray came out between filming, and so he went from being, like, the third character in the movie. Like, yeah. he is the third character in the movie, to all of a sudden being advertised as starring Jamie Foxx. Because it's, like, best actor winner, <laughs> Jamie Foxx, and it's like, what? Like, this just seems like a totally different wavelength of like 
prestige Oscar winning thing. This jet is a robot and it's going <laughs> to blow up yeah. everybody. And again, you got to imagine Rob Cohen this is very important. Rob Cohen, we've had this many conversations with, uh, what's the guy that we, we tear apart all the time who has all these great ideas for films. Oh, Peter Hyams. Yeah. Peter Hyams. <laughs> like Rob Cohen gets, he's gotten so many cracks at the bat of things. Like he kicked off the fast and furious movies. Like that's it. He did the first one. Yeah. Didn't he Which, do a pirates movie at some point? No, that's Rob Marshall. Oh, Rob Cohen okay. did triple X. He mm-hmm. did uh, Stealth. He did the third Mummy movie. Oh, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Yeah. That is one of the worst like theater movies yes. <laughs> I've ever seen. Yeah, that's what I mean. So he's like just a dude who just doesn't make good movies. Even though like not I'm that, a not big, that I'm, I'm I'm a big I'm Fast and saying... Furious fan, but it is like that is my least favorite Fast and the Furious movie. I just want to clarify that, like, I'm all for Brendan Fraser coming back. I'm not saying Mummy 3 is bad because of him. No, no, no. It's he's just doing a bad everything movie. he can. He's the best part of that movie. I, th- I seem to remember a scene where he's, like, fly fishing, fishing and yes. it was pretty good. It's <laughs> really funny. Yeah. jumps off of a mountain. No, it's the movie really is, like, bad. it has even Yetis in it. Like, I remember the trailer being like, there's Yetis in this movie. It's so exciting. And then you watch it, you're like, this is just a misuse of everything. Like, yeah. did you not see these other two Mummy movies? Like, go do what they did. Why is Steven Summers not here, guys? Like, where is he? Maybe he was making Odd Thomas or something. No, I think I, it was G.I. Joe at that time. Like, he was moving okay. on to G.I. Joe. So, anyways. That's aside. But that's, yep, yes, but- W.D. Richter. I think, do it, as you look through his IMDb, just a quick thing, he clearly hasn't written anything for such a long time that makes me think that Stealth was like a, an old script that they dusted off for this movie. Maybe, yeah. Uh, he's also the Buckra- Buckaroo Bonsai guy. Like, yes. that's probably his actual claim to like something, uh, not stealth. But that was the credit that jumped out to me. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about like uh, stealth. We're talking about Needful Things. Uh, it came out late August, nineteen ninety three, uh, the twenty seventh. Uh, I don't know how much it costs to make because the internet wouldn't tell me. <laughs> like yeah. I checked no, like you can't four find different it anyway. websites. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but it it brought in 15.2 million domestic. Uh 5.2 of that was the opening weekend and apparently 32.6 worldwide according to a form Forbes summary of Stephen King box office takes. So we'll go with that. Uh it okay, but just a important clarification. The version I watched came out May 22nd, 1996 because I watched like a TV movie edit of this of this movie yeah tbs uh created uh like got heston to kind of create like a a director's cut of sorts even though he doesn't call it that and he added back in an hour's worth of footage yeah into this film so nathan watched the three-hour version yeah and this version like finally was commercially released at all like last year in germany (laughs) Yes. So, yeah. like, it, it was basically, like, this did happen. It came out on TV. People probably taped it. But it finally got a real release this year. It is in 4x3, though, the one I watched. So. Yeah, because it was, yeah, TV cut, right? So. Yeah. But anyway, uh, why don't you tell us about this uh, this movie here, Needful Things? For sure. Leland Gaunt, <clears throat> sorry, Leland Gaunt is someone very interested in the menial lives of the residents of Castle Rock, Maine. A little too interested. He's willing to part with some very valuable items if the interested party are willing to do some dirty work for him. Soon, he sets up an elaborate scheme where the whole town have it out 
for one another. Little do they know that Leland Gaunt is actually the devil. Well, they should have known. They, they really should have known. What would have tipped him off, though? The I mean, teeth he's just this and the friendly... nails and the... <laughs> like, how nobody stops just to be like, wait, is I'm doing something sneakily for this guy, and then this bad stuff's happening to me over here. Could Maybe someone sneakily? else is yeah. doing something. Like, yeah. nobody stops to think. And, like, so I, I think you're meant to believe that he has, like, some kind of, like, spiritual control over this town, too, mm-hmm. that's blinding them. But I... The movie doesn't make that clear. Yeah, as we're talking about it, I think like maybe we'll stumble on scenes I saw and you didn't, but we'll try 100%. to kind of keep it clear as to what we're talking about. Uh, but yeah, there's certain sequences that seem to suggest like a person's almost in like a hypnotic state while they're doing the evil deed, and then they kind of snap out of it and go, "Ah, oh, crap!" and run away yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Like there's there's a certain malevolent like cloud over the town during all this but like but, but they, yeah. the, there's other parts of the movie that seem to suggest that like leland has the same control that like the christian devil has right like he only has as much control as you let him have like mm-hmm. you have more control than the devil to stop him if you let him right it's like you giving into your own like evil inklings is yes. what's causing problems here and but he's kind of pressing buttons and trying to lure you off the path or whatever with his uh temptations which you know that's that's how it goes uh but yeah it's a it's a castle rock uh movie uh with the logo and then it's immediately set in castle (laughs) rock which is kind of fun yeah yeah Uh, this is the first this is the first and only movie that castle rock entertainment made that is set in castle rock oh I Even like Stand it, by Me is kind of why that company exists. But yeah, because Rob I Reiner, guess... Rob Reiner made Castle Rock after Stand by Me. Okay. And then they went on to do Misery, but Misery doesn't take place in Castle Rock. No. Yeah. And then, you know, every Seinfeld episode and whatever. Man, <laughs> like you you, you think about like lot. you think about Castle Rock and how successful they are, and it's like no, it's Seinfeld money. They have Seinfeld money, mm-hmm. and. Like they're just getting syndicate syndicated like, bucks every day. Does that day. mean Stephen King? Like Stephen King didn't have a hand in Castle Rock at all, right? I wouldn't think so, but it's a little weird because it's expressly named after his thing from a property of his. So, yeah. but it's weird maybe. to think that Rob Reiner, who is like a guy who like was personally involved in what like many consider to be one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, right? With uh, All in the Family, mm-hmm. and then went on to have a very successful directing career also has Seinfeld money. Yeah. No, he's he's doing really well. Doing <laughs> Him and Carl, well. you know, two generations of comedy people. Yeah. Uh, okay. My version of the movie opened with a car chase. Is that <laughs> okay. common? So that's the thing. So <laughs> I watched I watched the two-hour theatrical cut, and yeah. at the end of it all, I was like, I'm just going to turn on this three-hour thing, see how far I can make it, and right off the bat, right off the bat is something fully different. Oh, my movie opens with the same uh, credit montage with the car driving into town Mm -hmm. and then hard cut to Ed Harris, uh, the sheriff, walking into the restaurant where Cujo attacks him. Like the dog jumps up on him. That's clearly a Cujo reference. Oh, okay. And then he goes and and he talks to his girlfriend at the, he talks to Holly Gennaro 
at the Oh, like restaurant. he he's going to propose. That's like yeah. the first thing he's doing. That's the first oh, thing that's okay. happening in the movie. We missed oh, weird. that whole weird, hilariously way to open up a movie, like car chase <laughs> sequence with explosions and yeah. Yeah, okay. Cause this this was like my first note taken was just about the score being like a little too much, like a little too evil and like chanting Latin, like, okay, I guess Satan's coming to town. Like it's a little much. Uh Patrick Doyle did the score. Yeah. Uh but yeah, there's just this black car like Mercedes racing down the roads and this like evil music is accompanying it because there's like a shot where there's no music and Ed Harris and his deputy are standing at the side of the road. And then you like hear the music accompanying the car coming over the horizon. It's just like, wow, maybe that thing stereo is just (laughs) blowing the doors off. And then he literally shears a door off like the police vehicle. Like it's just such overtly sinister evil stuff that this car is doing. But you don't know it's Leland Gaunton there because it explodes. Here's the thing. And he's hidden by smoke. It's such a so. crazy way to start a movie because, like, when I, I – so I watched my opening scene and it's like, oh, we're just getting to know these characters. Like, here's the we're sheriff. We're just kind of hanging out in here's, this little town. Yeah, here's the sheriff. Here's this restaurant filled with multiple characters we're going to get to know, including Amanda Plummer and Holly Gennaro from Die Hard. And, like, all these people. And I'm like, oh, we're getting to know this town. And then all of a sudden I click on this extended cut and it's, like, opening with this, like, crazy car chase action scene with an explosion. And I'm like, this is tonally weird. Like, this is a weird choice here. Yeah. I'm I'm sort of justifying it, like, because the book includes this crazy impossible, like, speed demon drive that happens. But it's a different character doing it. Uh, it's Ace Merrill, actually, like Kiefer Sutherland's character from Stand yes. By Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He grows up to become this kind of, like, pathetic adult that Leland recruits into his, like, evil scheme. Uh, the explosives that you presumably see later, like, in the basement of the store. Yeah. Those were, like, retrieved from a storage locker, like, an impossible distance away uh, for Leland to get them that night. But, like, Ace races this, like, hell car from there to the town. So I'm this assuming they just, like, book. wanted the evil car to have a scene and kind of, like, put it in there. <laughs> but it's a bit weird. So I, I was going to wait a little bit longer, but you kind of just said a bunch of things in a row that I'm like, we got to talk about it. Okay. I, I don't think I can read Stephen King books from the early 90s. Oh, Because okay. it's just filled with so much nonsense. Like, every time I hear about these books, <laughs> I'm like, that is... Like, that's not the Stephen King I like. Like, that's not the stuff I want to read from Stephen King. Uh, like, demon hell cars being raced with explosions happening I kind of love town. it, though, because they sort of suggest that this car isn't, like, correct in a way that's sort of like uh, sort of like the low men in yellow coats cars or something. Like, there's something, like, not this dimension about it. Yeah. Uh, so... I kind of dug what was happening with this like evil object kind of warehouse that Leland has. Like the inventory he brought to Castle Rock isn't all the stuff he has. Mm-hmm. And then like there's this other warehouse where he has weirder things. It's weird like, that there's he some actually fun has to be physical. Had. Like it's weird that he has physical possessions. Like I thought he would. The movie seems to imply that he's using magic to conjure yeah. these things. But you're actually, saying the book he actually brought stuff with him. Well, explosives, and I'm assuming just by being on Earth for thousands of years, c- causing problems in Nazareth and whatever, like he's he's collecting. How much of a backstory some... do we get in this in this book? 
well, I'm the movie lets you know some key events anyway. The movie talks. It's a great moment where Max von Sydow is talking about this carpenter from Nazareth and like nice like, guy, oh, but a little him. wayward or whatever type of thing he says. Yeah. yeah. So like, much potential. Or so much something. potential. That's what it was. And I was yeah, like, it's it's fun. Oh, this is eye roll stuff right here. But it's like it's not a horror movie at all, though, right? We can admit to that. This is not a horror movie. Like, I feel like if you were a little kid, this might be, like, a weird, scary person or something. I but... guess so, but, like, like the most sinister Max von Sydow is, and he could be sinister. Like, he's in um, what many people consider, like, one of the greatest horror movies of all time uh, mm. in The Exorcist. And, like, he knows how to play sinister and, and like, and, and a physical presence. And I was like, oh, this guy is hamming this movie up. Like, he's not playing an, an sinister's devil. He's playing, like... I'm going to be, like, winking at the camera devil. Well, it's like a gleeful prankster kind of thing. Yeah, like, like he delights in all this chaos he's causing, but in a very kind of not cartoonish, but, like, TV special kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, he's sitting in his den kind of clawing his own hands and, like, tuning in to the evil that's that's spreading, like, this web or whatever across the town. It seems to be the suggestion. He's, like, seeing visions of what's going on. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, he's connected to... It's, like... it's. It seems to imply that he's kind of leeching on the negative energy that he's creating in this town. Yeah. Like, like sort of like Pennywise, just from fear, gets more powerful. Yes. From, like, chaos and people indulging in sin, I guess. Like, he gets a thrill or something from that and gets <laughs> energized. Uh, it keeps him going. So he, he keeps bouncing from town to town. Uh, doing this over and over again uh i kind of like i knew he was in it and was interested to see his his take on the character i kind of didn't know ed harris was sheriff pangborn wait i I think that's like the that's like always been the thing i've known about this movie like i remember this movie coming out like as a kid like and i was like like i could see the case and it was always ed harris with a shotgun okay uh ed harris does have a shotgun i just didn't soak up that detail until it was like on the screen his name and i was like oh perfect i know exactly who he's playing that makes a lot of sense same with jt walsh as soon as his name is on the screen it's like i know exactly who he's playing perfect like why wouldn't you cast him as just entitled jerk guy in town yeah you know uh yeah he's danforth keaton the third aka buster Mm -hmm. uh who is our local like spouse abusing like bad embezzler guy like every stephen king town has to have someone like this uh and yeah he's he's there doing his his crappy stuff um he's sort of a gambling addict also how much of the like him embezzling stuff subplot was in the version you saw like every beat of it like uh like leland embezzling stuff no dan firth embezzling from the town oh uh like we got conversations about it um like we got uh, the big thing was like ed harris and him have a conversation like that they had enough to set up like that he was embezzling he's addicted to horse racing he has a great yeah. scene where he's like cackling over top of this toy and just yeah, like okay. being a, a monster the big stuff so when i was reading online the big stuff that's different between the two was um the little kid that we can introduce thing first thing i think it's the Mickey yeah Mantle brian part. rusk yeah, yeah rusk his mom who gets the elvis glasses she only has like an like she's on screen twice in my whole movie doesn't have any words okay 
Uh, when that stuff started happening, I definitely recognized it from the book. Uh, it was kind of when I was watching the credits, I realized there was no Elvis songs credited in the like initial credits. Yeah. And then there's sort of an additional like three screens or whatever that happens after where it's like TV version. Yeah. And then it's it mentions those songs. And I was like, oh, the entire Elvis subplot is just gone. It doesn't really do much other than explain why his mom is so out of it and not paying attention to the trouble he's getting into, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a little bit tertiary maybe but it's it's from the book uh i think whenever she puts the glasses on she basically like perceives elvis to literally be there yes (laughs) it's like part of what's entrancing that's thing i never got any of those things literally i just had a a a, a scene where at the bar there's a woman there with elvis glasses on okay and then at the end of the movie when ed harris is like like doing his big speech to the whole town there's he goes like and eleanor your son is blah 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 and i'm like what? Who's this? Is a lady with the El, El, like Elvis glasses? Like I had no idea. Who, who is that? Was. Yeah, yeah. It does not tie that. Like that's his mom. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like when when Brian's having his like nightmares and stuff. Do you get any of like her in her room, like saying Brian doesn't have nightmares or anything? Oh, he doesn't have nightmares at all. No, Brian. Um, Brian like only does the stuff he needs to do, and then okay. Okay, the question I had for you: There's this really yeah. dramatic scene where Brian has a gun. Yeah, and he's like he's had enough. Like he's 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 seen the things that he's done has have caused people to die, type of thing. Like Leland's getting him to throw um, chicken poop on this lady's house, and and this lady then thinks that this other lady's doing it, and it causes them to get in a fight and kill each other. And Brian's yeah. like he takes that in, and he has a gun, and like Ed Harris and them have a showdown to like get Harris to try and talk him down. And then there's this really dramatic scene where. Ed Harris lunges at the kid to grab the gun. It cuts to black. There's a gunshot. And then the next scene happens, and Ed Harris is in passing that he's fine, but we never see the kid again. Yeah. Uh, I think in, it must be in the book he just straight up kills himself, and it's really crazy. Okay. Uh, the producers like were like, you can't have a kid just shoot himself in your movie. That's too dark and insane. Uh, he survives. And then, yeah. In like dialogue only, they're just like, yeah, uh, he's gonna be okay. Yeah. Like he, he totally But it's like almost like I was gonna himself. watch his mouth. Like, did they ADR this in afterwards? Type of thing. Like, I'm trying to think if like I would say no because the mom also doesn't seem like her son died. <laughs> you know. But would she because she was obsessed with her glasses? And, like, like her own. Yeah, stuff. if she's still in her brain fog about Elvis, maybe she wouldn't realize the depth of what happened. But. She yeah, it's a little it's a little weird because she's also still there. She's not at the hospital or anything. <laughs> like she's just like, oh, he's fine. I yeah. visited him this morning. Anyway, here I am in town dealing with all this. Like it, it doesn't quite. It's just connect. such a weird sequence because it's like so dramatic, and then all of a sudden it's cut, and then it's Ed Harris talking to someone, and he's yeah. like, Brian just it's did little... this, and he's okay. And I'm like, what? What just what? That sounds a little unfortunate, like they don't lead up to it. There's a cool dream he has that like foreshadows that where it's literally the same place he goes to do that. Like it's all weird reflections on it and Leland is there and yeah, staring down at him and stuff. Yeah. None of that's in my movie. Okay. I thought it was a pretty cool scene. Uh, also like during the crazy car chase, like after the car explodes, there's a cool scene where like Leland is totally I did see that. by fire and yes. smoke. And he's got these was... like wide eyes and he's grinning. And the worst part of that scene, like 
to make that shot make sense, you had mm-hmm. to believe that Ed Harris can't pivot left or right. To, like, get around the smoke cloud before it's too late kind of thing? Or just at all. Like, he's literally looking down this very narrow pyre of smoke, and he sees Leland on the other side, and I'm like, oh, just Ed, just, like, run five feet to your left, and you'll have a different <laughs> view. I think I think in, in that, like, moment, his primary concern isn't, like, revealing the identity of who that is. It's just like, what? Is there a like, dude, like, standing in the fire? I can't stand in my movie how, un- like, faced he is by this crazy thing that happens and he just goes about his day like it's a dick it's a normal thing for have a car chase flip and have the car be empty and like yeah and everyone's just like yeah it went up in flames the body went up in flames they're like that doesn't happen that doesn't happen like, like there would be get, like he he has dialogue where he's like there'd be a shoe or something and it's yeah. just like i don't know there he would just be melted teeth. yeah exactly yeah. and then like and then all of a sudden leland shows up in a volvo in your version yeah. And in my version, uh, he's just he's just there all of a sudden. The thing the opening sequences like all tie to Leland for you is this bell he has on his mirror. Yeah. Uh it's then in this other car full of boxes and stuff, and yes. then it's in his shop hanging over the That's door. That's the thing. So, so we have in my movie we just have le- like the, the Mercedes driving into town. Like normal okay. over the credits. With the with some of those shots of with the bell. With some of the shots the... of the bell and then Jump to Ed Harris going to the restaurant and then jump to the kid going into Leland's shop and the bell going off when he goes into the door. All right. I guess that still works. It's just like it's the same person. It's just a, a dramatic sequence that's completely gone for my movie. Yeah. I kind of dug it, though, because, I again, there's a sequence with the car. They just kind of refigured how that would play into the story. It's sure. a bit nuts to kick off your movie that way, but <laughs> I kind of I kind of dug that. Uh, there's also dialogue from Ed Harris about, like, how bad his day's been to Bonnie Bedelia about, like, oh, I mean, it's great that you're going to marry me, but today has sucked up until now. Yeah. There was this crazy car chase and also this thing, like, I think there was a fight or something between some other characters. Oh, yeah, Dan Forth was getting in some beef with Norris mm-hmm. Ridgwick, the deputy. Like, okay. You keep using not, the character's name like I, I know any of them. Can you just say J.T. Walsh? J.T. Walsh gets in a fight with, I don't know the actor's the deputy. name. For the deputy. You can say the but deputy. Yeah, but okay. like, you just say Dean Norrish? Like, who are you saying? Dan Norrish? Dan Firth. Dan uh, Firth. That's the character. I yeah, keep hearing Foster. Dean Norris when you said it. I'm like, Dean Norris, yeah, that's the actor. No. Breaking Dean Bad. Norris is not in this movie. <laughs> um, but J.T. Walsh, yeah. No, the moment man, that J.T. Walsh walks on screen, you're like, oh, there's the villain. I spotted him. It's like the worst version of a Where's Waldo, because if you're like watching a movie, and if J.T. Walsh turns around a corner, you're like, that's the bad guy. And the best version of this that we actually get, what we actually reviewed this movie was Red Rock West, because here's here's Nick Cage sitting there, and then we look down the lane, and there's J.T. Walsh, and you're like, I bet that's a bad guy. Don't, don't, don't do what that guy says, yeah. (laughs) I feel like even the negotiator has a thing where it's like, oh, he's just a hostage. And it's like, somehow this is his fault, though. I don't know why, but he's bad also. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not, he's not on the level ever. He's like, never he's on the level. Movie. Like, even, like, and even when he's not the main bad guy, he's always the back guy. Like, in Few Good Men, he's the backup bad guy. Right? Sure. Like, he's in uh, on the scheme, but then he kills he's, himself. He's in on it. He sort of makes good, but yeah. Like, but he's still in on it. And then he's still, and he still has that creepy scene where he's like, like, I have a gun. Look forward. Like, don't look back here. Like, he's yeah, still playing yeah. G.T. Walsh. I don't know. 
But breakdown. No, he, breakdown, we could say, is one of his best, better roles, right? He He's great in general, yeah. yeah. But he's he's very... He gets to just be sinister and breakdown. Yes. <laughs> so, whereas, yeah, he's kind of second fiddle villain to Satan in this. <laughs> in this so, movie. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a willing pawn in a way uh, to some of the madness. But, okay, I know this movie, like, wasn't liked. I read Ebert's review. Like, that's the version you saw... Uh, I have some quibbles with the three hour version I saw, but like in general, I felt it was a pretty faithful interpretation of the big book I read Mm -hmm. for, for a movie. Uh, there's probably more moving pieces in the book, uh, but there's still quite a few characters, uh, for one movie in this, like just all kind of having their little conflicts and everything. Um, I was kind of enjoying like Stephen King, just setting up these dominoes for the first, like hour and change of this you know like yeah this person kind of has a beef with this person and this person is always complaining about those catholics and this guy over no, here I, I totally i could totally see how this reads well um and obviously I, I haven't read the book like you have so i can't i can't speak to the needful things of the book i can totally see how this could like oh you can see him setting up the dominoes for one big payoff where everything goes goes south i just i I like Ed Harris. I'm going to put that out there. I right off the bat, I like Ed Harris. I think there's he I like him more often than I don't like him. Okay. I didn't I don't like this character. The person who's Sheriff playing. Alan Pangborn. Yeah. yeah. I just don't care and I feel like Ed Harris also doesn't seem to care about playing this character. How much of like him and his relationship uh, like the the proposal and them hanging out and stuff do you get because it's really like him hanging out with that what's the waitress's name well it's like holly Gennaro. i know who you're talking it's holly Gennaro from die hard yeah, yeah. but bonnie bedelia is the actress bonnie bedelia um, yeah yeah um we we get a lot of uh bonnie bonnie is more like suspicious of him throughout the movie like she thinks that he's in on the the scheme oh so we get a lot yeah. of that but I just, okay. I just, I have nobody to latch onto. So what I did was, as like somebody who I cared about, so what I did was I just latched onto Leland because I was like, oh, here, at least Max von, da- Vance von Sydow is having a good time with this movie. I'm going to be with him this whole time. And yeah. then all the stuff goes wrong. And I'm, I was kind of just like cheering for like, eh, yeah, JT, like blow that up. Blow up this town. Blow up the town, JT. <laughs> blow up the town. Yeah, the villainy side of the story is a little more like fun and engaging in a way like and if they threw ace merrill in too it would be even more like just dirtbags ruling the scene it seems like such <laughs> a know? waste of uh, opportunity to not like bring back like i mean i maybe did Kiefer just wasn't interested in doing it but like bringing back at least the character because yeah this is still sony this is castle rock so rob reiner like they could have done this yeah, I feel like the substitution is maybe that Hugh character who like gets the jacket from from oh, yeah. his old school or whatever. But he's, he's such a waste of time. Like I found, I found so many of these like little petty quibbles to be like so deeply like like maybe they would be better in in book form because you'd have more time to get into them. But like some of them were so petty that I was like. I don't believe that somebody would take like a just get more in the headspace of the person before they do something crazy. Yeah, because like all of a sudden this guy walks in and these two people are, have a shotguns at each other and they blow each other away and I'm like, what is yeah. happening? <laughs> <laughs> so, I I kind of I liked his scene like it, you know each person in the town at some point visits the store and Leland just happens to have something they desperately want and that's the that's the scheme right that's how he lures you into his web of doing 
mean-spirited stuff. Uh, I kind of liked his scene with that the most because he just kind of has this nostalgia for when he was a cool guy in high school. Yep. Like, I kind of dug that, like, nostalgic, like, weird melancholy that he was going through and how easily he fell right into the, like, moth light or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> that Leland has there. Like, the jacket is so absurdly lit in the window, ready for him to, like, latch onto. And it's it's kind of... I don't know. Like one of the devices the movie uses is like when the person touches the object, like electricity shoots out of it it's like, <laughs> and they have like uh, a vision. They have which... a vision of something connected to it. So like the first one we get is the kid who gets a Mickey Mantle card. It's like all of a sudden he's Mickey Mantle hitting a home run and running the bases type of thing. <laughs> My yeah. favorite one though was Holly Gennaro's like locket. Who's going to heal her. She has early onset uh, arthritis yeah. Um, and her locket he gives her, like, is, is something, some magical herb that's going to, like, heal her hands. And he puts it on, and, and she's like, it's got to touch your skin. And it touches her skin. It gives him a shock, but then she moans. And then there's, and it cuts to a shot of, like, elderly Max von Sadow, like, physically ravaging Holly, young Holly, like, Bonnie Bedelia. And you're yeah. just like, this, this again is something, well, could be read better than seen. So. Oh, or just like, wouldn't you get weird, sinister vibes from that or something? Like it's, but like it's not something abstract, like oh, of distant, foggy memory or something. It's like no, it's this person I'm currently standing with, like sexually assaulting me. Maybe <laughs> like it's a she, little weird. I think the movie was, I think it was implying that she was enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then but, it's basically just foreshadowing a thing that does happen. Yes, so. and that's the thing is like, again, these are choices that like. I could see Stephen King making work on page. Like we were talking about last week in Dreamcatcher, like scatological horror can work in a book. Like writing a fart noise can work in a book, but hearing a fart noise in real life is like, Oh, that's not funny. I mean, that's not scary. That's funny. In this scene, it's like, Oh, like Leland Gaunt, who is like vaguely described as like this person, like seducing this young woman. Okay, cool. Max von Sydow seducing Bonnie Bedelia, totally different thing. I guess. <laughs> totally <laughs> different okay. thing. Anyways, it's fine. I, I, I enjoyed Max's whole vibe, really. Like, yeah, what Max, he's doing Max here. was by far, yeah. he was uh, the one I was enjoying the most in this movie. Okay. Like, I thought he was uh, having a, a blast. I am just seeing, like, one Ed Harris moment early I did enjoy, though, where he's he yells at two characters that everyone is insane everywhere because he's from the big city. Yes. And he thought this would be a quiet, like, easy assignment being in Castle Rock. But everyone seems to have it out for each other already. <laughs> like, there's that kind of, like, conflicts already exist. And then well, this Leland is, this is there is to Castle push Rock people. And, like, this might be the first castle rock entertainment film that's been taking place in castle rock but like at this point stephen king's written like many books that take place in castle rock and i mean cujo i think is castle rock yeah uh so yeah there's been bad events in oh uh one of the big ones is uh dead zone like the serial killer situation that is in that movie was in castle rock and that sheriff is actually alan's dad i think yep like, there's a couple generations of Pangborns that factor into this town. And yeah, and, well, the movie we're going to be watching later on in this batch, Dead uh, Dark Half. Yeah. Uh, that came out the same year. 
also has uh, Leland's oh. character in that movie, but played by a different actor, Michael Rooker. Yeah, Alan is also in that. Yeah, we'll see how another actor plays the same guy. Yeah, uh, so I, I think this like this town at this point should just kind of be used to like bad things happen here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a cursed place, I guess. But it has, I, I think it's shot in BC. It kind of just has like a maritime Z light roll, whatever, ocean. They're going side. for Maine, though, right? Like, that's the big thing. They're going for that, yeah. that Maine feel. Mm hmm. So. A lot of boats, a lot of sitting near the forest. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. It has a kind of idyllic autumnal thing going on. Uh, but did you get the achy breaky heart scene? In your <laughs> I got achy breaky heart a whole bunch of times, yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, if you had to keep hearing that loop over and over, wouldn't you shoot the bartender? Who doesn't... <laughs> it's especially, I think it was more like, it wasn't the loop. It was just, yeah, it was just like it was the, something was busted. But yeah. he was just so dramatic, you know, like in smashing <laughs> things. Yeah. Yeah. Hugh, Hugh gets easily riled up, I yeah. guess. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. So a, a big question for you. I mean, this is important. What came first for you? The book or the movie, or what do you uh, mean? The book or Rick and Morty season one, episode nine. Oh, uh, I think Rick and Morty, but I don't know that I care that they make fun of this situation. That's <laughs> fine. Explicitly. Then you read the book, though, so I went from the movie. I went from the that like the the um, episode episode to this movie, and here we and I'm just like, oh man. <laughs> Oh man, so I don't have the depth of what you're like caring about from this book, like the yeah. the mastery that, that Stephen King can bring. Because Heston's not doing a good job directing this movie. It's so bland and boring. Like he's doing a very straight by the numbers directorial job in this film. I guess so. Like it's kind of the cast is doing a lot of lifting, and then I kind of just like how the town looks, but I don't know that that's him in any special way. I just think that uh, it looks like a, a like a small town. Like in BC, but it's supposed to be this small town in Maine. But there, well, there wasn't any like unique features that stuck out. Like I can't even remember what a house looks like. And I thought even Needful Things as a shop was kind of like, boring looking. Oh sure, like as a corner shop, it's pretty innocuous looking, which might be part of what it's doing. It it just kind of isn't drawing attention to itself. But yeah. uh, I like the opening shot I got where it was like this boat out in the water and it kind of pulls back and you see this forest and then it pulls back and you see the two vehicles broken on the side of the mm -hmm. road and the cops are kind of trying to fix it uh that's, it was that's, just kind of yeah a, that opening shot but yeah okay that I, I that's, don't, that's I, what i have and you're, the car, you're sure but I then guess. you still have the scene like you still have the bump i don't know i've i found what roger Eber saying in his review where he was like i'm i haven't seen a horror movie with this many explosions mm-hmm and I was just like kind of like agreeing with him. I was like, is this a horror movie? Like nothing I find scary. Like nothing I, in this movie is scary to me. And anything that's remarkably close to scary, like anytime he's giving the, like these items to people and they're getting these visions, it's still being accompanied by this hilarious electricity that goes from touching this stuff. Yeah. The electricity thing kind of undercuts it. I feel it's a way of like quickly inserting why this means so much to this person without having tons of time of them explaining it or yes. like sitting with it, obsessing over it kind of yeah. thing, which they do have with the Elvis thing, but they cut that out because it is very long uh, and kind of aimless if it's doesn't pay off. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think like why this idea feels like it's 
so done like i guess there's a ray bradbury story that's basically the same idea and then there's like the the idea of like a store that sells you a monkey's paw or something is another kind of like don't trust a like if it's too good to be true it is is even the monkey like the monkey's paw one they try to bring it back and the and there's no shop there anymore too oh sure yeah in the book there's actually an element of that where he is essentially just grifting people too. Like the the baseball card ends up being like some beat up worthless card, mm-hmm. but it's truly like an eye of the beholder thing where like Brian sees the amazing rare card that he wants, mm-hmm. but in reality, it's like why why is Brian like some third scrub pitcher from the fifties? Like who cares? And it's like I I don't know. He loves that thing. I don't know. <laughs> like there's no way to justify it. Or like the the horse race thing. I think is like rusted and broken. But it doesn't look that way to Danforth. Yeah, so but they don't get that. Like it. that is a, an element they get. Like that at least would have like an element of funness in a in a film form. But they're just like, yeah. no, these are all what these things are. No, I, I guess I was kind of disappointed they didn't do that. Like if Myrtle, like uh, JT Walsh's wife, saw him like obsessing over this thing, and it's just like, what the hell is wrong? That's what with I mean. Him? Like it, it was already kind of silly that like he believed this idea that this toy would predict the real life races. So that yeah. was a fun element of it. But if it was like Myrtle, like watching him play with this rusted old thing and being like, this is special to me. And then he like sees he's this thing actually working. insane. Cause he's, he's seeing something that's not there. Yeah. Like or like, uh, the guy with the jacket wearing like this weird beat up old, like hold filled jacket. And he's just like, so proud of it. Like those would be yeah. totally different ways, but that's not what this movie's going for. Like the movie's going for like, no, these are real magic filled things. Mm-hmm. So, and they just, I don't know. It it all it takes for someone to turn against their neighbor is a little bit of selfish pleasure or something. Like poop, seems to be poop being thrown on your sheets and then you're gonna murder that person. <laughs> and and smashing all the windows with apples like that. that yeah. Also. Yeah. Yeah. I get Amanda Plummer's thing, like her being like, "My dog was killed. I'm gonna go kill you." But smashing your windows and then murdering someone doesn't seem equivalent to me. Yeah, no, Wilma, the woman she, like, Amanda Plummer spars with, uh, she seems more on edge for no real reason. <laughs> I, I think there might have been something more in the book about, like, the dog keeps digging up her yard or something. Like, there's some extra There seems to be, thing. yeah, there seems to be this off-screen beef with this dog specifically. Like, she keeps threatening the dog right off the bat before Leland even gets there. It's like, get that thing away from me. It's yeah. like, what? It's literally just sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a really well-behaved Hollywood dog. I don't know what you're mad about. Was but... Is that dog, like, casting in the film, like, it's a Cujo choice, right? Oh, sure. Now that now that you've said it, I see it. I was just like, hey, it's it's Nettie's favorite dog. I wasn't okay. even really thinking Because literally, about it. like, the opening scene is, like, Ed, is Ed Harris walking in, and he gets jumped on by this dog. And oh, I was like, okay. "Oh man, the, like audiences might be like, oh Cujo, oh no, never mind." Sure, you. It could even literally be a litter mate of Cujo. Like it, mm-hmm. it actually could be the same like brood of dogs. That's true. I I just hadn't thought about it. Wait, did uh, uh like which character is, these, is of these are in Radar? Cujo? Is that the name of the dog? Raider. Anyway, which sorry um, what? Which characters of these are in Cujo? Uh, a pangborn, I think, factors into that story also, okay. like uh, a, the sheriff that gets there too late kind of thing. Um, spo- well, they have to deal with this crazy dog situation on their own, <laughs> as, as it turns out. Okay. Uh, but we'll get to that, right? Isn't that on our... Kujo's nope. not on our thing, because you've seen it before, and 
I, yeah. I hadn't, but I, I will be watching it myself. Okay. Because I, I do um, hear good things. People like that movie. One of our bit characters I, I was kind of happy with just seeing, uh, it was Don S. Davis from Twin Peaks, uh, is the reverend in town. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's beefing with the father, like, the, over the at the priests. Catholic yeah. school. Yeah, or the Catholic church. Uh, how much of that do you get with, like, the casino night and stuff? We don't get the casino night, but we get them, like, beef. <laughs> My favorite scene. <laughs> oh, man. That, I, that's the thing. Maybe you got, like, more depth because I got cartoon characters. My favorite scene was, like, the, there was, like, uh, it's the fight scene with Amanda Plummer, like, the fallout from that. And the yeah. father's there blessing the dead body. And then the reverend oh, yeah. comes and starts blessing no. the dead body at the same time. And it's, yeah. like... What like we don't get a lot of the beef other than like little snide comments and then this happens and then like the big fight in the street, so it's like man these are just cartoon characters that just hate each other for no reason other than my religion's different than your religion. Yeah, I mean there you don't get like too much dimension in the movie, but there there's a little bit more probably like just. There's this thing about, like, the Catholic Church is going to hold a casino night, and the Baptist Church is very opposed to that because, like, dealing money in the temple kind of thing, I would assume, is their issue. So he's putting up, like, stickers and pamphlets and stuff saying, like, don't don't do that. That's evil. Like, Satan is among us or something. Like, he's being very... Oh, yeah. Is there a scene where he literally goes to Leland and asks if he can put a say no to yes. the devil sticker? Yes. And then Leland window? has this really hilarious interaction with him being like, oh, I I don't think I can put that up. You know, like he yeah. took person like <laughs> somehow he was seeing a cross, but it wasn't. It was just like a cartoonish drawing of himself. And he's like, I can't even get on board with this idea. Like. Like, I'm this the is double really offensive to me. me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, there, there's some cheeky fun to be had with with some of this, like how evil Leland allegedly is, and how he's hanging out in this like small pie eating town is is sort of just funny to me. Like, yeah, like that's it, the thing. It, is, like, I get, he he the stories that he weaves about like where he's been and and the stuff he's caused, and I'm like, why Castle Rock, man? Like New York City is just right over there. It's pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to do maybe, a lot. Maybe he's done some stuff there, or maybe he's like scheduled to be there later. Like there, there's sort of this weird like scrapbook of evil that he has in his basement of sorts. Like he has a pile of newspapers of all these like evil things that have happened that he's apparently been a part of that the sheriff finds. Did yeah. this happen in your? Okay. Uh, but I didn't quite get like was he at Hiroshima or something? Like was he at Pearl Harbor? Like. Did he get people to start fighting minutes before bombs started dropping? So like, here's the thing. No, no, doing? I think, okay, just knowing, like, Stephen King, he, like, he he likes to recycle variations and ideas, right? Right. So I don't know if you remember in the book Dr. Sleep, when the true knot, there's the opening chapter about the true knot. Mm-hmm. They talk about, like, them traveling across the country, and he's like, you would find the true knot at New York City on 9-11, yeah, because they had this sense of something that was coming, and then they were going to like suck feed up, off of it, kind of thing. Feed right? off of it, like off the awful misery of what. Yeah, happened. type of thing, and like just the the dead people. Uh, that is like that could just be what Leland's also doing. Like he sure, somehow okay. feeds energy off of the death and destruction of things. So he would be he might he might not be causing Hiroshima, but he have a sense that something bad's going to happen. So he'll go there to 
witness it. And obviously to, like, he can survive. Relish in the sinister Well, he can also probably yeah. be at ground zero to watch the stuff because he was able to survive an explosion in this movie. Yeah. Easily. I, I did kind of enjoy that too. I It was I a feel funny like... scene just to see him like get up out of the rubble and dust himself off. Like was... Yeah. There was there was maybe like two opportunities this movie had to like get sillier, like with some evil makeup or like eyes turn yellow or something, but they yeah. just don't do it. Like they play it really like subtle <laughs> isn't the word. Because well, he's no, obviously because, like, evil. You, you do kind of have scenes like that where like Somehow, when Leland's by himself, that's when his nails get super, like, long and, and thick. And his teeth and, get, like, his, worse. His teeth yeah. get very yellow. Um, and it does get yellow in those scenes, too. Like, his teeth mm-hmm. are yellow when he fully kind of shows his true colors. My, my favorite part of that interaction, I, I love that whole interaction, just him getting up out of the rubble, dusting himself off, and, and just being like, well, I guess I'm on, on, on the road again type of thing. That he's this like, wasn't my best work. Uh, oh well. But then he just turns <laughs> yeah. to uh, what's what's the sheriff's name? Alan. Yeah. He just turns to Alan. And he's like, ah, well, I don't think I'll be seeing you again, but I will be seeing your son in uh, what is it, twenty fifty three, and stuff like that. And just like, what is that reference to? Like, what is what? Yeah. Like, just okay. See you later, Satan. <laughs> like. Yeah. You can't defeat me, but you've you got me. You figured out my plan, so goodbye. Yeah, <laughs> you know, goodbye, peace out. Yeah, I don't know. I, I honestly, man, I went in with, with like a, with high hopes of fun campiness, and I kind of mm-hmm. was just like, I think I was just a little bit bored because like it just for me it was like the level of production didn't. It felt like a like a TV movie that got released theatrically. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, watching it as kind of like a big budget TV movie was kind of how I was perceiving it. It was like, oh, this is pretty solid. <laughs> like, and it and the thing I really did appreciate about it was like the setup time was sufficient to like set everything in motion. I actually found the second half of the movie weirdly slow for like how much was going on. Yeah, it was like, well, this is the time where the falling action is going to take place and everyone starts fighting each other. But we kind of need the sheriff to, like, travel around and see it all happening or something. Mm -hmm. Like, it just felt like this weird molasses type, like, chaos is erupting, but gradually. Yes. (laughs) Like, it wasn't exciting enough in the second half for, like, I almost wish it was like a, like, you know how the end of, like, the Godfather movies, there's just, like, a bunch of people get hit. (laughs) Like, like, cut, cut, cut. Person gets shot in the eye. Person gets shot in this hotel elevator or whatever. Like it's just jumping around and bad things are happening. Yeah. Like if it was like maybe you have the Nettie Wilma fight like partway through the movie to like set things into a higher gear, and then suddenly in the last like fifteen minutes, churches are exploding. People are like running around the streets. But that is what happens. It's just they put it all in two or three minutes at the very end (laughs) in a one giant mob scene. Um, yeah, I wish there was kind of like more explicit moments of like people getting triggered to go out and start causing chaos. Like, dude comes home and his his book is missing and he's he's pissed yeah. and he goes grabs an axe or something. Like everything just kind of tips over at the same time instead of like either it's already tipped over and you're only seeing the end of it fleetingly, mm-hmm. which we get some of, or it's just kind of all sher- the sheriff's perspective, like. And he knows exactly who did it because Brian told him 
and then he kind of finally decides to go confront it is sort of how it plays. Well, oh, I think weird. he's scared to confront him because he thinks he knows something's off with him. Because Brian yeah. has that, his own arc about uh, Brian when he was a New York City cop. Am I right about New York? Oh, Allen, uh, Pittsburgh. Allen. Yeah, sorry, Pittsburgh. He like left the force because he he um, was like he used excessive violence and yeah. ended up killing some people, right? I think he beat a guy to death or something. Yeah. Seems to be the implication. Yeah. So okay, I think the best way I can explain like where this movie sits off for me is. Do you remember? So in the last batch, we, t- we watched Supernatural, Supernova, and then we watched uh, Pitch Black afterwards, right? And we found out they came out like the same summer. Okay. But they yeah. felt like a million miles apart from each other on storytelling, sci-fi, like production level, despite the fact that one was a fraction of the cost of the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it felt like Supernatural came out of a bygone era that was dead Hollywood era. And Pitch Black Supernova. was like... Yeah, yeah, Supernova. And then Pitch Black was like part of this new era of like what the future was going to look like. Type yeah, of thing, young right? scrappy filmmakers maximizing their budget in a way. Yeah, yeah. right? Um, this movie came out the same summer as Jurassic Park. Yep, and it did. this movie doesn't feel like it came out in the era after Jurassic Park. It feels like it came out in the era of like the late 80s, but it was like four or five years off. No, you're right. Like, this movie could have come out in, like, summer 89, but that's before the book was written. <laughs> but it would have somehow, like, fit what I saw better yes. in my mind than, like, late 93. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is after Backdraft. This is just two years before Apollo 13. Like, like mm-hmm. this is literally three months after Jurassic Park and, like, Last Action Hero, where movies are just kind of, like... They're utilizing their budgets a bit better and, like, knowing how to make films on a larger scale. And this movie just doesn't have that scale. And it's like, this is Sony. Like, this is, like, a real movie. Like, Castle yeah. Rock's a real studio. Sony's, a, like, this is Columbia Pictures. This is a real studio. And it feels like a TV movie. I I mentally wasn't, like, I was, I was basically just seeing, like, Stephen King's Twin Peaks or something. Like, this is just what he would do with, like, a weird small town of oddball characters. Oh, sure, like, yeah. But that's, but that's like, that's practically, I think what you're doing is you're, you're thinking from the Stephen King side, whereas I'm thinking of from, like, this movie went to theaters. Like, yeah. you and I went, in 1993, <laughs> you and I would have had We could have paid ticket money and gone and sat in a theater during the three weeks it was in its <laughs> theatrical run. And uh, gone and, and seen this movie. This. And I'm saying, like, yeah. that's how I imagine these movies when I watch them. And I just, like, I think maybe you have the benefit of, like, you watched a, literally a TV cut with, like, four yeah. by three. Like, yes. Yeah. No, whereas, this, this felt like a TV grade production in a way, yeah. but, like, with some slightly, like, oh, that's, that's pretty impressive for a TV movie, but it's not a TV movie. They actually spent, like, real studio money in this like, theatrical if you, movie. Like, if you and I saw this movie in theaters, we would have walked out of that movie being, like, woof. Yeah, like, kind of underwhelming, I would assume. But, yeah, for where I was, like, seeing how many beats of the book they actually did pick up, how much they were trying to, like, encapsulate that, I I was sort of happy with it, but mm-hmm. it's... But I don't have that bias. Like, that's a big key thing. Maybe if I, if I read Needful Things and watched this movie, I might have that bias of, like, oh, I like these things, and you're doing them. I don't have that. I just have, like, is this something worth it on its own? And I'm like, yeah. nah, not really for me. 
Well, as a, like, I'm trying to think through, like, as a two-hour thing, too. Like, that's the thing. I don't think this, like, scale of story would normally be worth three hours, but I've watched, like, worse Stephen King things that are longer. <laughs> so... <laughs> like, what, Stephen Webber's like The TV, Shining? Like, TV, The Stand, and, like, whoa, Golden whoa, whoa, Years. Whoa, 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 TV's the... Like, which one? The new one or the old one? The old one. The old one's amazing. Oh, okay. It's not, but okay. There's some really good stuff in that old one, man. I, I uh, yeah, Matt Frewer is pretty good. Like, yeah. what are we talking about? Gary Sinise <laughs> is pretty solid. I remember watching it as a kid, and I enjoyed it. Oh, okay. I think I like that book more than you, though, too. So maybe it's just oh, a matter of, like, it not living up to a thing in my brain. But you, you, <laughs> you know? read the book, and then you watched it as an adult, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think yes. I, I was in the zeitgeist. I watched it on TV. Like, I would watch the episodes as they came out on CBS. Okay. Maybe maybe it had its moment in time and I missed it. Uh, but, yeah, recently I was struggling through The Golden Years, which is, like, a TV movie from, like, 1990 or whatever. Yeah. And it is, like, really low-budget, hard-to-watch kind of stuff. Like, it, it's rough in comparison to this. This was very pleasant in contrast to other stuff. Well, that's the thing. Uh, is and like, then it has, like, a solid cast in general for this. So when yeah. I When I agreed to this batch... Like this idea of doing Stephen King movies, I wanted to like be very clear off the get go. Like these have to be movies a I'm interested in because there's a whole bunch of things of his movies I've not seen on purpose. Like I've not okay. seen a lot of his movies on purpose, and the ones I have seen I have liked. Like I mean I would I loved Running Man. Running Man's like one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger films, but people don't mm-hmm. talk about it as a Stephen King movie too often. No, like I'm wondering if even the movie might be credited to Bachman somehow. Like no, I think it, it really is isn't to known. Yeah, yeah. But, but I just realized there's a bunch of like half decent. Like I watched Dead Dead Zone for the first time like two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how did I miss this movie? Like it's Cronenberg, it's Walken, Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah. It's got some really good stuff to it. And I was like, okay, maybe I do need to kind of dive in because like I grew up on Stephen King movies being. Oh man, I love The Shining, and Stephen King hates it. And people love Carrie, and I think it's fine. Yeah. People love. Like Salem's Lot existed as a TV movie. No, that's but the thing. I what other movies it. do people love that he made? Like, I haven't seen Dead Zone. Is there, what's the big Stephen King movies that before, like, it? Uh, well, Cujo came out. <laughs> I don't know. Creepshow was pretty solid for a. Uh like anthology movie like he didn't have really as a big like like he's not he's ever really broken big until 2017's it in the film like that was a big box office smash yeah like he he'd always have like things around but they would be like mick garris directed them and you know we'll be looking at some of those uh no that's what i mean so like like, i guess there's a lot of these that were kind of like was this a tv movie or did this come out in theaters like that's a good question for a bunch of these it's just like i don't know like maybe maybe debuted on tv i actually can't tell you christine is a movie i've always really liked but again that's not a stephen king thing that's a like that's a john John carpenter Carpenter thing quality type of thing yeah, um, I mean, it's it's pretty accurate that there's a car that's alive and it drives over Yeah, people. but I feel like John Carpenter is the perfect choice to make a movie about a, a living car killing people with yeah. the most cussing I've ever seen in a, in a John Carpenter movie. Yeah, it felt like that movie decided to be R <laughs> on the script level only. Like, it's so there's weird. There's no violence. There's no gore. There's no, like, sex and nudity. It is just, like, pure, like, filth coming out of people's mouths. <laughs> 
Actually, I thought about this in light of what some of the stuff you were saying with Dreamcatcher. Like, that totally is a Stephen King thing, is just, like, vile cursing. Yes. Like, it was one of those, like, is this how kids talked in the 50s with, like, Stand By Me? Or yeah. is this, like, how, like, the 80s version of kids no, no, no. I think he. Talked? I think that's how he grew up, like, with his friends. I think that's genuinely pretty authentic. I just read Hearts and Atlantis, like, the novella, like, portion yeah. of Hearts and Atlantis. And it's and like all like college kids talking college, yeah. crap to each other. And they are saying yeah. absolutely vile, disgusting things. They kind of brought back this like <laughs> this wave and of anxiety from my own high school time where it was like lunchroom conversations were always deeply like disgusting and aggressive like, and sexual <laughs> and like very like like unpleasant. And brought back bad memories, and I was, like, finding myself not liking it. The worst part was I wasn't actually reading it. I was listening to the audiobook, and, like, Stephen King was reading it to me, and he was putting a little relish on every single swear word. So he was mm. dropping the F-bombs, but, like, putting a little relish on it, so it made it feel gross. Kind of similar yeah. to, like, Cheech Marin when he says uh, he's outside of the, the titty twister. Yeah, he's talking about cats. He's talking yeah. about cats, and he just keeps saying that word, but he's putting that, the, the, that version of relish that's, like, this is disgusting. There's a way to say that word and not make it that gross, Cheech. Oh, you know what? That That's actually a great transition into some of this because <laughs> my, my version was edited for language. Like, there's no way it wasn't. In no, no. I, I was watching an opening. In the opening scene, they drop an, an SH. Like, they drop a... Sure, but there's scenes later where, like, people are really upset with each other, and then they're saying, like, that that fool, and then it's, like, clearly not what they're saying. Yeah. Like, it's ADR kind of stuff, and, it, like, it's Wilma getting home to her, like, destroyed house. Yeah, yeah. She's just kept – keeps saying, like, I'm going to get that fool, and it's just, like, I don't I don't think that's what she said. Like, <laughs> can you confirm in the theatrical they're actually cursing at no, each no, other? No, no, they do or? curse at each other. Like, there's F-bombs being dropped and stuff like that. But, like, okay. I was watching the opening scene – of like the opening scene of the chase he drops uh like he drops a, a shit yes yeah there th- you're allowed pg tv levels of cursing shit's not but... a pg that's pg 13 level tv uh my wife said this too and i just don't know what y'all are smoking because uh primetime the there's was no pg there's no show on primetime television that you'll hear a somebody drop the sh bomb okay i'm talking about like pg movies like Back to the Future has tons. Oh of that. yes, no, 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 no. I know, but you're talking about PG. TV, TV edited for TV. They oh, wouldn't, okay. they wouldn't do that. Like for edited for TV, PG means no swearing almost at all. Like even Dan not even like be, after 10 p.m. or something. After 10 p.m. would be TV 14, and that's okay. when they can say bitch and stuff like that, but they can't drop sh. They do say bitch in this movie also. Yes. So um, there's literally and then like there's actually the stabbing and stuff like in the fight I felt was like fairly savage. So yes. I wasn't sure what rating I was seeing. Like, is this still <laughs> TVMA? But we just can't go HBO. No, there there this? are actually in the states. There's some really hard rules about some words can't be said on television. Like if you want a certain rating, that you can do violence, you can do all this stuff, but you can't say. The F, the F word or another other type of words, scatological words, um, unless you are like a fully a cable place that you can't be accessed yeah. just through clicking through channels. So a kid can't okay. stumble across. A kid can stumble across South Park if they had cable channels. And oh, then we, even we then... Said, we said this aired on TBS, right? Like this totally fits my understanding of their playbook. Yeah, but like TBS... they would allow. TBS is a cable channel to us. It is a very... Yeah. It is like a... It is like their... Uh, CTV or global in the states. Okay. So, like everybody so, had TBS. 
okay. Yeah. I don't know. All I all I'm saying is like there was moments where people were at like peak intensity anger and the language wasn't reflecting that. Oh no no no. Sure I, I know what you're saying. And now that you've made, yeah. you've clarified your PG comment, you're right. In a film, you're allowed to say some SHs, some um, female dogs, but you're, in a PG film, you're, even... you're allowed zero f words. Okay. That's why, like, no, uh, like allowed... Anchorman has one, right? PG thirteen Anchorman has one. Yes, yeah, yeah. You cross into a PG-13. PG-13 is allowed one F-bomb, and there's even rules around what you're allowed to, it like... It can't be in a sexual context. can't be in a sexual right? context, and it can't be as anger towards somebody. Like, you can't say F you. You can it say... It has to be, like, funny. <laughs> it has to be funny or, like, used as an adjective. Right? Like, okay. get the F away from me, or that's not effing funny, or something like that. Like, you can say that, but you can't, like, say F you or any, like, sexual connotation. It's a whole I thing. Think, That's how like X Men. Does just say like "oh fudge" or something when he steps out and sees stuff? X Men First Class has an f bomb in it. Mm-hmm. Wolverine says it. Oh yeah, like Charles yeah, Xavier and Magneto walk in there, and he's just like, "Get the," he's like, "Get the f out of here," like mm-hmm. "leave me the f alone" type of thing. You're allowed to say yeah. that. That's the f bomb you're allowed in a PG thirteen movie, which is hilarious because it's like, you guys know you're still being marketed towards children, right? Like just. Like this is mm-hmm. still an X Men movie. Oh, are you? No, kids swear more than I do. Like, what do you? You know, that's where I was kind of Correct. like the Stand By Me realization of just like, oh, like kids younger than me were saying way gnarlier stuff thirty years ago. <laughs> you know, like I was just like, I never felt more small town Christian kid <laughs> than like seeing that movie. Yeah, but I guess so I mean, yeah. I guess I was swearing too, but like, like I know my parents. Like that's we're movies aren't. Like, we're not real. Our world's not real about what kids are watching or what they're doing with each other. Parents yeah. have, like, this idea that, like, no, kids can't hear swear words until they're adults. Oh, like, this is the walled garden yeah. is movies, and we don't let that fly in here. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Okay. So it's like, I'm just saying, like, that Fox and their brain were like, yeah, let's put an F-bomb in this kid's movie, and that's okay. And it's like, all right, okay. I mean, like, I agree with you. I was watching, like... Like, Freddy, Freddy movies all of like, over weekends in grade four. Like, I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street marathons, like, The Shining in grade four. That lady came yeah. out of the bath in grade four, and I was like, that's going to scar me. <laughs> like, mentally underline that right now. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah, this movie, I don't know, man. I, I just, I, I wanted to like it. I've always wanted to watch it. It's a bit of a premise I like as an idea. And so when mm. Rick and Morty did it and, like, I thought a really funny job of just undermining the concept. Like I just thought it was immediately like, it's almost like Dan Harmon or Justin uh, Roiland have like just a beef with this idea. And they're just like, I'm just going to screw this idea over. Specifically watching it this way, this time, I almost wonder if they literally saw this cut I saw on TV or something. Cause that opening song was very similar to like a song that was in season five that like midway through there's this kind of Hellraiser themed like yeah, episode Hellraiser theme. and this song kicks in at one point and instead of chanting in Latin like the singers are literally just saying something evil's well, happening this is in the what is it in the mountain halls or whatever it is it's a popular song no 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 you're thinking about Hall of the Mountain King yeah Hall of I'm the Mountain literally King. talking about the Patrick Doyle like opening song that accompanies his evil car yeah, I thought it was in the Hall of the Mountain King. No, that's later when Nettie is sneaking around the house. Oh, like, that's right. Okay. 
I remember the, yeah. in the Hall of the Mountain King being in this movie. That is very much like a mischief is going on song also. Yes. Uh, but like the overdone, like hitting the, like Ebert described this movie as like satanic water torture. And I, <laughs> I enjoyed it more than he did clearly, but that music, like uh, flying over this like it, idyllic looking bay in Maine, but then like Satan chanting is happening. It's just like, <laughs> all right, like, you could have at least tricked us for five minutes about this guy or something like, Oh, there's a friendly new shopkeeper in town. Like before there's a reveal, like they don't even bother trying to do that. It's yeah. just this guy's like sheared a door off a cop car blew up is now in town with his sinister store. And like, it's just, it doesn't waste any time just getting right down to like, no, this guy's really evil is he even human is the only question we're leaving for like a little bit. Yeah. And then we'll get to that later when, yeah, I did enjoy Sheriff Pangborn literally saying like, he's not a human being <laughs> like to explain to people what's really going on. But it's like 1894, Alan It's like, yeah, yeah, he was there. Okay. Like, shut up. <laughs> this guy is actually Satan. Yeah. Yeah. So, so can I tell I you know. something that like kind of frustrated me just a smidge? Okay. Uh, just like larger king king lore stuff, like King loves his lore. He loves like his references to other works of his. Yeah, Leland Gaunt has so many similar like similarities to like Randall Flagg, Martin Broadcloak, to the Man in Black. Uh, I mean, he's kind of just a more reserved version. Like he's not even. It depends upon like, the version you talk about, because yeah, Randall Flagg is is less of a reserved version, but like, the Man in Black is pretty reserved. Martin like literally was able to live a life where he was like sneaking around trying to get Roland's father killed and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I'm thinking of like Eyes of the Dragon, where he's kind of like the court wizard or whatever. Yeah. Like he's just kind of in the employ of the king. Uh, so yeah, I guess he can kind of keep his overt evil under, <laughs> undercover long enough to infiltrate places and whatever. I just like Leland, uh, Leland shows up and no, no more of Stephen King stuff, even though this is clearly within his dark tower universe. Like, stuff. that's the thing. I kind of like this, this version of like this ageless evil kind of guy, like the kind of implications he was in Palestine forever ago, Egypt forever ago, like, as some dealer of some kind, kind of yeah, but like, like this but, death dealing double faced thing. Flag has the same ability as this because because he's from an alternate dimension, he can therefore travel through time. Okay. So like that's how like um, Randall Flag can be in the future end of the world at the stand and still be uh, in the ancient court of Merlin type of thing yeah it's like all the he's same in a medieval yeah yeah he's like an, I, he's a human being that has tapped into evil and is now able to travel the multiverse like would you want them to just like tie it directly be like i've gone by many names including leland or or you... something right like i just wanted like a little bit of a like he has like sometimes he has these like little fleshes between things little references like there's there's a couple of them where um there's like another version where RF shows up in a bunch of things, like uh, characters. Like at one point, I like my initials were RF or something like that, and it was just like, like a little tidbit. He never confirms he's Randall Flagg, but a little tidbit that he's Randall Flagg. It took really the big thing was the Man in Black and Martin in Dark Tower don't get con like confirmed to be Randall Flagg until the fourth book, which took place after this one. Okay. 
So, uh, like, The Stand existed, Dark Tower, Drawing to the Three, and Wastelands existed. And then, mm-hmm. so Martin and the Men in Black and Randall Flagg exist. And then all of a sudden, Wizard and Glass shows up, and it's like, oh, Randall Flagg is Martin. Who that is. was. Yeah, like, he's yeah. all one character. So it just, it just sucks that, like, Steven didn't kind of, like, pull in other, like, very similarly minded ability-wise people. Or I just, guess. Or that he just didn't use Leland ever again. He's that, never... That's more what I would want, I think, is just, like, maybe... Although, that's the thing. Like, people were already, like, apparently so over this conceit in this movie. Like, this story, where it's just like, I get it, Satan. Like, oh, it doesn't cost anything except your soul. <laughs> like, that kind of, like, oh, I see where this is going kind of thing. Like... I feel like the the book maybe is trying to play like a certain dark comedy element to it, like this kind of web of weird small town people that are trigger like hair trigger away from just going off or something. Like that's the amusement. Uh, if you just do that again, I, you can't. I I don't really know what else Leland could do. That's like a radically different scheme. Yeah. Like he's just in the real estate game in two thousand eight or something. Like what do you do? <laughs> you know. I guess. Like. Just looking at some things right now, there's yeah. a short story called The Library Policeman. And oh, yeah. Yeah. There's I've a read reference that one. to another shop being opened by Leland in Junction City, Iowa called Answered Prayers. Oh, okay. The, I mean, the one that sets the stage directly for this story is Sundog in terms of just like Pop Merrill has a store that does weird things in town, but then it something horrible happens and it's that's why there's a vacancy yeah uh for leland to move in so that's cool that they're at least tipping the hat that like leland is somewhere doing his thing somewhere like in this version the story right before this was akron ohio so young lebron bought some shoes or something yeah like uh you're talking about just the ticket right his shop called like alan pangborn remembers a shop in a hometown called just the ticket Oh, no, but in the movie they talk about Akron. Do they not in the theatrical? No, not in the theatrical. But I guess a reference in the book is that he talks about a shop from his like hometown youth called Just the Ticket, and it implies that Gaunt was also like oh, okay. the shopkeeper Like he just there. happened to miss him that time. Well, okay. No, well, there's this scene right when Mox found Sadao. This makes sense for this scene now in the movie, but not, not in the book, because when Max meets a new person... He kind of has this, like, have we met before? And he has mm-hmm. that with Ed Harris, but then, like, there's no conclusion to it. Sure, yeah. And he seems to know... Well, I mean, he he seems to know everything about everybody, but... Yeah, but he has like, this feeling of, like... And it seems like Gaunt's ability is that he has a, a, a long memory. And he remembers yeah. people and, inter- and, like, actually interacting with people. He knows everyone's de- deepest de- secrets and, and, and all their conceits. But, like, he, he remembers meeting people. Or like, yeah. or he'll know when he's going to meet someone. So, his interaction with Ed Harris seems like with Alan seems to be like, "Have we met before? Are you sure about that?" And he's like, oh, "I'm from Pittsburgh." The book seems to have a reference that before he was in Pittsburgh, he went to a shop that Gaunt might have like owned. Do Do you get to see him flipping through his journal to start the page for Castle Rock? Like, does that happen? Yeah, you do, and you get this. There's There's a line in it where he references a few other places he's been. Yeah, like the page right before that was Akron, Ohio. Yeah. And that, that's his most recent other stop on his trail of evil. 
but yeah. Anyway, uh, Satan's shop. Don't don't shop there. Uh, do you want? Do we want to talk MVPs or? Sure. Okay. Uh, I'll go first, and it was pretty easy. Uh, I just went with Max von Sydow. Agreed. Because <laughs> I. Okay, great <laughs> consensus. Uh, have we had a consensus like Herzog? Maybe. Uh, ooh, we might have like had an actual consensus, but I chose to talk. One of us chose to talk about someone else. Just to okay. kind of like share the spotlight because we love something so much. And yeah, it probably I, was the Nick Cage batch. Okay. I just feel like he is on the wavelength of just kind of like, is he scary? No. Is he kind of like gleefully sinister? Yes. I, yes. I kind of enjoyed him just like sipping brandy in his parlor and cackling basically. Like, like it's very camp, but I, I like that. Like so. I said, like though I might not have enjoyed this movie as much uh, he's the thing I latched on to. Like, I wasn't yeah. latching on to any main characters. I was latching on to Leland, so I was, like, enjoying whenever Max is on screen and having a good time. Like, he's a guy that, like, I get excited about when he shows up in things. Like, he's in Judge Dredd, and, like, I love him in Judge Dredd. Like, I think he's great in that movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I just remember, does he get, like, sent to the waist with yes. a shotgun? he gets yeah, sent yeah. to the waist with a shotgun, and it's kind of great. He just kind of, yeah. like, carries his gravitas as a, as a human because he's so, like, menacingly tall and, like, he had, just has a face that just looks like – he could be simultaneously, like, a grandfather but also a dude you wouldn't want to mess with or see in a dark alley. Right. Actually, now I'm thinking about, like, Shutter Island where it's like, is he a friendly doctor or a sinister Nazi scientist? Exactly. It's just like, I don't know. He could be both <laughs> depending on what you're it's thinking Max about. Max wants it out, so it depends upon which movie you're making, Martin Scorsese. Oh, he's just... I guess I'll wait and see. Yeah. yeah. He's not a Nazi doctor, but he's also not a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's he's just finding the right groove here. I, I just enjoyed watching him, like... There's there's stuff that maybe is playing to be scary, but it just ends up like, hey, well, whatever. It's another scene for Max to be here. Yeah. Like he'll just kind of appear in the streets behind somebody right when they're thinking about him or whatever. <laughs> it's almost like Jason, but then he just talks to you instead yeah. of hacks you with something. Like it's just, oh, I was walking around under the pier, and who happens to be here but Leland? And he's gonna he's gonna tell me about something that I shouldn't be thinking about. Max but, has one of yeah. those uh, John Hurt qualities where you watch him and you're like, this man has always been 80 years old. <laughs> yeah, him in Exorcist specifically like added decades to people's perception of how old he was because yeah. they like put some flower in his hair or whatever. And he's like, looks 57. I don't yeah. know. But then <laughs> here's this movie. He's like, actually, like, I just, it's just weird that you bring up Shutter Island. So I'm like, how, how old is Max von Sydow? Didn't he recently pass away? He recently passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Like and, this guy. He's he's like John Hurt, where you're just like you assume like that guy hit eighty in nineteen seventies. How is he still acting in like the twenty fifteens? Oh, yeah, because he's not actually that old. He just aged poorly. Like he just immediately became a character actor's like face. Yeah, yeah, like, like he just, just he became like of character. Yeah, he just yeah he's like yeah his face just aged quickly. So you're just like oh no, he's never been young. That's the big thing. It's like Richard Jenkins, yeah. who's like always perpetually forty-five to fifty-five years old. Like he's just, a like sad he's just sad. had that hairline, had those glasses. Yeah, he's yeah. just been a middle-aged man for his entire life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Anyways, but um, yeah, Max, Max is is definitely my MVP. I, I enjoyed watching him on screen. He was having he was having a good time. JT was a close one, but there's just too many times where like I was talking about that cartoon quality to some of the characters. 
Yeah. JT really leaned into that cartooniness of him. Like, I kind of really hated the scene where he kills his wife. It's just so, like, what? Like, that just happens? Yes. Like, It's so okay. deep. Like, it's, it made sense to me from a Stephen King perspective, because that's something Stephen King loves to do, is have the husband turn evil and, and like kill his wife. Like, just the spousal abusing yeah. awful person? Um, yeah. But it just didn't match with J.T. Walsh's, like, cartoony goofishness. Like, he always yeah. seemed to be, like, a bumbling dude. And then the ending death scene, the the... The writing for that scene was so terrible, like making JT Wash turn on Max von Sydow. Cause he's, Max is starting to manipulate him against the town, and he gets him to strap himself with a bomb. He's going to blow up the town, and JT Walsh is angry at the town. And then Ed Harris is convincing JT Walsh that he's actually the bad guy, and somehow gets through to JT in like a way that didn't make sense. But then the movie just kept moving forward, so you kind of forget that it happened, and he just body slams. Max von Sydow yeah, and then blows him like, up. I'm trying to even piece it together. Like he basically appeals like, no, you really did love Myrtle. And like, you would never have done that. He killed her. And then it's like, Oh no, you're right. I would never have done that. It was all he, his fault. The, throughout the but, whole movie, even before Max showed up and got into his claws into him, he never showed an ounce of love to Myrtle. No, to the he's point where, like, just kind of casually terrible. To when her, I, yeah. when I first met Myrtle, I thought that that was his like secretary assistant. Cause I was like, yeah. this is his wife. Like, what? Like, if there was some sort of weird, like, beat beforehand, like, you know, he's wrestling with, like, wanting to propose or something. Maybe if he went to Danforth and asked something, or they had a moment or something, but there's nothing to harken back to. It just kind of, yeah, suddenly clicks in his head to tackle Max von Sydow and yell, don't call me Buster, and explode. But somehow he (laughs) tackles him up the stairs of this place and goes through a window. window. But up the stairs. (laughs) Max von Sydow got tackled upstairs. Anyways, yeah, yeah. This movie, how the ending is, is pretty silly, but Max Max is definitely having a good time. Yeah. Uh, so my question directly stems from this movie because it just kind of had me thinking about this line of of thinking. Yeah. Uh, I like the jacket scene. I like the kind of like appealing to nostalgia stuff. Is there anything that immediately comes to mind as being like a needful thing for yourself? So that this is you weird. Would... Like this is uh, yeah. My. My wife and I got married this summer, and we kind of, like, with all the restrictions, we kind of couldn't really go anywhere. So we decided to just head up to Edmonton for the weekend after after our wedding before we moved. Yeah. Um, and we went to the antique fair in Old Strathcona in Edmonton. And we're mm-hmm. moving around, and it's a pretty cool place. I've never been there before, but it's, like, really big, lots of cool stuff in it. And we're finally going through the last section, which is, like, where the toys are. And I'm looking around, and all of a sudden I see... This first toy I ever remember receiving, it's like one of my first memories. It was like Christmas morning. I'm a Christmas baby, so it was like my third or fourth birthday. And it was a Donatello detective, like in a trench coat. Oh, and okay. I, and it went missing from my childhood, and I've never been able to find it in all my toys. And like I've had this like weird Nelson Mandela, like Mandela effect thing going on because I was like, maybe I'm misremembering it because I'm a big Donatello fan of the Ninja Turtles. And but it was Raph that wore the trench coat in all the in the things. movie, right? In the movie, yeah. in the cartoon, and all the things. Raph is typically the one who wore the trench coat. So I was like, "Am I misremembering this?" Because I loved Donatello and I wanted him to be wearing the trench coat. And then there, right in front of me, in a little bag, kind of like Value Village type bag, was Donatello with the trench coat and the hat, fedora type hat, and like 
I bought it. Like, of course I bought it. Like, I have it. Okay. It's a, it makes me so happy that I found this thing and it's vindicated and it's like there. And you and you just paid money, right? Like, yeah, it I was paid a seven bucks. I just went down. Okay. No soul was given. No like little deed I had to co- a task to complete. I just I paid cash. Great. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. Uh, there's there was like a couple toy related things too. Like, th- there's this whole thing about this like pewter figurine that gets smashed or whatever that reminded me of like this great model of a tie fighter that I coveted greatly from my like grandparents house that they eventually gave me. And I played with it too much and broke the wing. <laughs> like it just snapped. And I felt like such an idiot. Cause it was like, this sat safely since 1977 in their house. And then the minute it's like given to me, I, I enjoy it too much. I still have it somewhere though. I could fix it. Like I felt so dumb about it that I'm like, I'm going to fix it someday. Yeah. So it probably wouldn't be that there's been this like weird thing that happened in grade three where there was this like prize chest that the teacher had. And if you were doing enough good stuff in the week, you got to choose something. Mm -hmm. And I chose this like ET toy and immediately it disappeared. I don't like, it was just like, did someone steal it? Did I just leave it somewhere? Like, what happened? Like, it, I just remember wanting it, remember getting it, and then it was gone from my life, like, yeah. almost immediately. And I was like, I wanted that, and I don't know what happened. So, and I haven't seen the same one ever again. Like, it's just, I'm sure it exists because it was a huge movie, but that, I don't know that I would, like, sell my soul for it, but <laughs> it was, like, such a weird, like, vivid memory that ended with like a big question mark in my like school days that I still would want to see it again. I bought like a piggy bank of ET years later as like a substitute of just like, well, it's ET merch and it sure <laughs> looks like him, but he had like weird gangly arms and you could raise his neck and stuff. So wait, and I is was this, just like, okay, so the original toy I'm guessing would be from the original movie. Yeah. Your, but like that was the, 82. was the piggy bank from the re-release era. Uh, it's hard to say. I got it at, like a flea market, so I I don't know. But as an it might adult? even be fan made or something. Yeah, I bought it probably as a late like a older teen. Okay. At the flea market kind of thing, I was just like, oh, crazy! Like ET merch. It's not the thing, but whatever. It's here, mm-hmm. so I have that. Okay. Uh, but yeah. Um, I mean, as a kid, I would have sold my soul for uh to have a Pog collection of original Pogs, like not all the off-brand stuff, but like proper Pog company pogs and okay. and slammers because <laughs> I like i was like... so envious of all my friends like i had like 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 stuff i could win pogs like garbage pogs my parents were like we're not buying pogs for you ryan they're clearly a bad fad for kids and i was so <laughs> in it as a kid that i was like i didn't understand that i wanted yeah. like i would see my friends who had real pogs and i'd be looking at them like these look amazing and like the slammer is like so much better than everybody else's slammers and I was, oh man, I was so envious. As this movie's 93, I almost wish there was something like that earmarked for a specific time. Like, it's like, dude, I want that new Kids on the Block CD or yeah, something. Yeah, or something, right? Like, but there's, what are you doing? That's another <laughs> you know? reason, like, another reason would have made it feel like it was a 93 film and not an 89 film. Was yeah, like, if like it a was Mickey like, Mantle card is still valuable now. Yeah, exactly. So. Like, it's like, yeah, like this kid wanting a Mickey Mantle card was like, oh... Wait, but in the book, you, you had mentioned in, in your comments that, like, this kid is a, a New York Yankees fan, and, and obviously, like, Steven... Yeah, that that stood out to me as being like, was this the case in the book? Because, like, like the it kid, would always be a Red Sox fan, in you the know? In the book, though, did the kid want a Mickey Mantle card? 
No, it was a it was a more obscure player. I had no okay. knowledge of. Then, that's the which thing. Which makes like they, me think it was a Red Sox or something. Yeah, that's what know? I mean. Because like obviously they picked Mickey Mantle because he's more common name to hear, and Mickey Mantle was a Yankee. Yeah, so, so they just kind of rejiggered that character to make be a more famous baseball player. Because who was paying attention to the Red Sox lineup of the fifties during the drought? You know, did like, you uh, did you read that comment that somebody on set was? had this weird, like, flash when the director was directing Max von Sydow in a scene, and somebody commented that it was like, whoa, there's Moses directing Jesus about how to act like Satan better. Yeah, I that almost seemed like too perfect a thing to say, which made me think someone thought of that when they went home. (laughs) Oh, 100%. But it still was one of those things where it's like, like, this director, who's Charlton Heston's son, played baby Moses going into the water... At the beginning of Ten Commandments. Yeah. So this kid has like Moses, like this actor, director, has Moses as his uh, – Here you, you pointed out his big movie. Like his big movie for me was Alaska. I remember Alaska coming out as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, Charlton's in that, right? Well, Charlton's in a lot of his stuff, yes. Yeah. I guess so. That's the old nepotism. But what's weird – you know what's really weird about Alaska? Charlton Heston plays a bad guy who's gun obsessed and starts using – rifles against these kids in the wildlife who wants to hunt animals and the movie is anti charlton heston that's very weird because yeah he is unapologetically pro-gun in yes. real life in real, which was well, kind of that like yeah no it's like literally moment. like yeah. these kids get lost in the wilderness they meet this animal and then charlton heston gets caught up in the scheme of trying to kill this endangered animal like he's a poacher essentially something yeah like that like okay anyways and uh there's a whole climactic sequence where he's in a helicopter chasing after these kids while he's shooting a rifle at this animal. Is one of the kids Vincent Carthizer? Is that that movie? Yeah, it's uh, Thor Birch is the other one, too. Okay. Yeah, it's like both of these kids would grow up to be in things that mattered more <laughs> than Alaska. But, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, what do you know Vincent Carthizer? Oh, from? Mad Men. He's, he's like yes. a major character in that, yeah. He was a 90s, he was a 90s kid actor, though, because he was in, like, Masterminds. Do you remember Masterminds? N- no? Tell me briefly about Masterminds. Uh, it's that movie that stars, like, uh, Patrick Stewart is a bad oh, guy. Oh, Patrick Stewart is a bad guy. Yeah, I remember seeing him on the cover. Does he have a mustache? Yes. Okay. And it's got, like, Vincent Carthizer is the main kid who's, like, antagonizing, uh, like, this headmaster character. I remember okay. the movie coming out as a kid, and I was very intrigued by it, but my parents weren't, so we weren't allowed to rent it. So I never mm. saw it. So, anyways. Yeah, that was a vivid cover, just with, like, Tim Curry and his creepy, like, monster hand, but he's also a clown. Yes. Like, it was just like, well, what's that? I didn't have any concept that that was a TV movie at the time. It no, was just, no, like, a neither. real deal I was just like, oh, it's a really long movie, huh? Um, to be fair, though, like, okay, so I, I like... Uh, 2017-2019's It movies. Like, I enjoy those films. Yeah. Um, I have fun with them. I think they do the kid stuff really well. I think they do the adult stuff really well. I think they miss the ball completely on good horror, like, when it comes to Pennywise. And, like, they're going more for, like, uh, my my friend, our friend Matthew kind of said, like, it's more of a... uh, Funhouse. A funhouse horror, right? Where it's like, oh, big, big scares all the time. Like, everything's a jump scare. That scene at the beginning of It with Tim Curry is significantly scarier than the opening scene. Oh, than the Sarsgaard version? Like just the Tim Curry the just clown plays it, in the he plays it straight. He plays a clown who's in a gutter 
cackling and having a good time like a clown would. And it's the yeah, obscurity they, of the they scene. They do kind of like tip into evil too much in the new one with like the weird eyes. The and, weird like, eye the and the drooling. Salivating and then, everything. But then yeah. immediately his mouth expanding and biting the kid's arm off. Mm-hmm. Like it just becomes like, oh, this is a different type of movie. Like this is fundamentally not the same type of movie. That original film, all the problems that there are, that spider at the end of it all, the act, the adult actors just hamming it up nonstop. Those kids are pretty solid. Seth Green's in that movie, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that opening scene with Georgie is better. Like that movie, like that actually scared me as a kid. Like just the idea of walking somewhere and then all of a sudden there's a clown and a drain gutter terrifies me. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah. know how we got into it. It's Stephen King related, right? So it's Stephen King. It's directly tying into everything. Uh, but yeah, okay. Thank. Um, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to ask us some stuff, uh, you can email ryanokvio.ca or nathanokvio.ca or tweet at okvideopodcast. Uh, next week, we're looking at Sleepwalkers, uh, which was directed by Mick Garris, who I alluded to earlier. Yeah. I think th- I think this came out in theaters, but we'll... No, no, yeah, we'll... it's a theatrical film. Okay. Uh, and this one was actually written for the screen by the man himself, Stephen King. Yes. He, he wrote the screenplay. So until then, I'm Nathan. And I'm Ryan. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>